Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Source from Sound Agriculture. I'm McCain Vogel, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. In today's episode, University of Nebraska Extension Engineer Paul Yassa discusses the benefits and economics of no-till and what he has learned from his 45-plus years of no-till research. Hi, I'm Paul Yoss. I'm an extension engineer with the University of Nebraska near Lincoln. And uh, I've been working with no-till actually since 1978. Finished my master's thesis on planter performance in 1980. In 1981, I got hired on full-time. I've been working with various aspects of soil and water conservation, no-till, cover crops, soil health, you name it, across the years. But some of my most valuable experiences actually came with uh, working with people like uh, some of the people listening today. I had a huge grant back in the 80s where I went out, uh, worked with 30 to 50 farmers a year. Can you make no-till work on your farm with your skills, abilities, uh, equipment, so on? And it gave me an opportunity to see, uh, like I say, 30 to 50 times six years, different situations. Too often, uh, we get some uh, excellent researcher who's been doing research on that same piece of ground on the same research farm his entire career. He knows that piece of ground forward and backward. My but going out working with those farmers in the 80s well, it just added huge to my uh, background and things that I like to show. So one question I always like to start with is uh, I'm always curious to know some of your earliest agriculture memories. And then uh, besides that, I guess, earliest no-till memories as well. Well, my first ag memories, I grew up on a livestock and crop farm in northeast Nebraska. We had some irrigation, some dry land. And uh, my dad was uh, one of the old timers who uh, plowed in my youngest days. As we got older, uh, dad switched to a roost hill system. Even on his irrigated corn, we'd be, we'd be like one disc and pat plant. So um, my favorite one was the first time my dad would take me out of the field. I was probably about 12 or 10, somewhere in there. I got to harrow the field that he had just got done plowing and disking. And he says he's going to make the first round around the field just so I don't hook a post or something. Sure enough, what do you think he did? He hooked a post. <laughs> and uh, he says, that's why I don't wanted to do it. And I'm like, well, I could have done that. But anyway, uh, another thing my dad did, uh, we sowed oats. And uh, I rode in a wagon that was, had an N-gate cedar on. Dad drove the tractor. And there's two scoops of oats into the N-gate cedar, then a coffee can full of hairy vetch. Uh, we got a lot of farmers now talking about uh, companion cropping or two crops growing at the same time. Well, Harry Vetch was a forerunner to what a lot of farmers are excited now about cover crops being a legume to fix nitrogen. Well, back then it was a legume to fix nitrogen for our corn is going to go in the oats double the next year. And so that was, again, when I was about, probably only about eight, 10 by then. Dad didn't trust me to drive the tractor, but I could run a scoop shovel. So that's my start in agriculture, as well as doing other work on a farm that had cattle and hogs and a few chickens. But then uh, when it comes to no-till, I didn't really learn that until I got to university, and I started studying that as part of my master's thesis. Uh, my advisor I had at the time was uh, uh, seeped in soil and water conservation, and uh, he wanted to learn more about that. So we worked together on how can we figure out different tillage systems and I say I evaluated the planter performance, and he was just adding to a soil and water conservation portfolio as we're working together. And so 
I started out in 1978. We surveyed 100 people planting corn, uh, 25 planting soybeans, 25 planting grain sorghum, looking at their planters, looking at how they're operating, looking at their features, and then uh, went back well three four weeks later and actually measured uh, plant spacing uniformity. Dug up some skips and gaps to see if it was a problem on metering or if the seed just didn't grow. And we dug up a few random seeds to see if we figure out the uniformity of planting depth. Well, out of those 150 farmers I uh, visited, it turns out that my top two performing planters were both in no-till. And that's when I decided then my thesis itself in 79 and 80, going to the field, I had six different planters, uh, a couple of different locations, and I ran them in different tillage systems. And even out of those six, two of them did better in no-till than till conditions. And that was 1980. And so I got real excited about working with equipment. And so when a job opening came up at the university, I tell people I was too lazy to look for another job. I've stayed there ever since. All right. Well, that's a good story. I like that. You mentioned at one point crop rotations and a little bit about cover crops. So that's a good segue to another question I have for you. In a no-till system, what is so important about having a good crop rotation? You know, I've heard a lot of different growers swear by just a two-crop rotation. A lot of others have more than that. What can you say about crop rotation? Well, the term I like to use is uh, the two crops, typical corn, soybeans across a lot of the Midwest. That's not a rotation. That's an oscillation, just back and forth, back and forth. A lot of people say that's working well for them. Well, when you start looking at crop rotation, you start looking at diversity. That diversity then is something I'm using to help manage pests, insects, diseases, weeds. My crop rotation then includes herbicide rotation. I don't use the easy button of all the same herbicide program across all my crops, even though some of the seed technology allows us to do that now in some situations. And uh, as a, for instance, when people ask me, what's my soybean herbicide program? I'll say, which field? We've got three different pre's I use and three different posts I use, depending on what the weed control problem is. And so when it comes to rotation, uh, it starts minimizing the problems you can have if you're stuck in the same groove. And, uh, you know, Roundup Ready crops are excellent when they first came out. Uh, the unfortunate thing is too many of our producers relied on glyphosate as their only weed control. It developed resistant weeds real fast. Well, in my fields that, uh, for instance, are in a corn-soybean rotation, this sees one shot of uh, glyphosate once every two years as a post-emerge on the soybeans. And that's not even on all my soybeans. In some of the other fields, I'm using some other products as well. And so, again, the rotation, think not just the crop. Think about the weed control. Think about uh, the varieties. Uh, you know, there's some farmers who will do corn on corn. Well, you got a corn variety that's a racehorse who performs good this year. Next year, you better have one with some defensive traits to make sure you don't get problems from corn on corn. The more uh, diversity you get in the rotation, uh, the better you're going to feed the soil system. And that's where a lot of producers now are relying on cover crops to do that for them. And as if, for instance, I've got a set of research blossoming in corn soybean rotation for a number of years, I uh, seed a cover crop uh, of cereal rye and Austrian winter peas. The corn and the cereal rye are both grasses, one cool season, one warm season. The Austrian winter peas and soybeans are both legumes, one cool season, one warm season. I've got all four crop types in a real simple corn soybean rotation, actually oscillation, with the rotation effect coming from the cover crop as well. And so again, when it comes to the diversity, uh, if it's not in your cash crops, put it in your cover crops. 
And it's just like you and I, when we go to the buffet at a restaurant, um, we don't eat all on the salad bar. We don't eat all on the meat course. We like a variety of things. Well, sort of our soil, our soil microbes. We want to feed it a variety of systems. All right. So along those same lines with cover crops, let's talk about something sort of timely. Obviously, uh, this past growing season, a lot of growers dealt with drought. And in terms of cover crops, I've heard a lot of different um, takes on whether certain growers think that cover crops actually helped them during the drought. Certain growers think that it made it worse and others say it had no no effect. What do you think? um, What would you tell the listeners about cover crops during a drought? Is this something that can be used to um, to help conserve soil moisture in terms of drought? Well, well, that's one advantage I have of working here in Nebraska. From one end of the state, we get uh, 35 inches of rain. The other end of the state, we get 10 inches of rain. So when it comes to working with producers across the state, I've seen a wide variety of things. The trouble is, is too many of your listeners out there, too many of the people in my audiences, they'll hear about cereal rye, and uh, they'll see a picture of a six-foot-tall cereal rye in Ohio. Well, you go out in western Nebraska, 10, 12 inches of rainfall, that does not work. You have to learn real fast what cover crops can you select that's going to work for your conditions. The trouble is, is too often when I'm planting a cover crop, say, in the fall, I don't know if next year is going to be a drought. And so it makes it hard to select. you got to start looking at the long-term averages. But as, for instance, in our research farm, the Rogers Memorial Farm, it's about 10 miles east of Lincoln, I have a picture that uh, I use in my presentations now where the one side is a corn bean rotation. It's been in no-till since 1981. In no-till, the corn bean rotation since uh, about 2005. And just across the terrace, so it's the same soil, everything, it's a corn bean wheat rotation with cover crops after the wheat. So there's a diversity there. Well, our drought here in southeast Nebraska actually started last year. Uh, After wheat harvest, I seeded a cover crop into the wheat stubble. And uh, when I had my field day in September, the cover crops were up about head high on me. And everyone says, oh, can we come graze this? Because everybody was already running short on their pasture because of the drought. I said, no, that's feeding my soil. I said, I'm going to plant corn in that next year. And they said, well, you're not going to have any moisture left. Well, I've uh, learned for my soil moisture conditions into wheat stubble, I choose the cover crop that frost kills, winter kills. Next spring, I don't have to worry about it dewatering my soil system. And in drought condition, that's perfect. Well, all that extra residue there with the corn, bean, wheat rotation, uh, we were dry in May and June this year. Only had about three inches of rain. Then uh, about the time we wanted to do wheat harvest, it started raining. You know, just a good old farmer's luck. Uh, but when the combine rolled this fall in those cornfields, uh, one on each side of the terrace, both planted the same day, actually within about an hour of each other, because we just worked across the hillside. The corn bean side, no cover crop, 120 bushel per acre. For a drought year that we finished the year seven inches behind in rainfall, we thought that was pretty good for dryland corn. The corn bean wheat rotation with the cover crop, all that extra residue there was 180 bushel per acre. A 60 bushel difference. And like I say, last September, people looked at the tall cover crop there and said, boy, you're not going to have any water left for your corn next year. What I had was a enough residue there to keep the sun and wind off the soil surface to reduce evaporation. I had an improved soil profile that when the rains did come, they soaked in. And when you have a rain that soaks in, say, only an inch or so, uh, because it was a small rain, I had roots right there under that residue to pick up that small rain. 
Now, in a field that has no residue, that top layer soaks in an inch. The roots are down there about six inches because that's where the moisture is. That small rain is not even used. And so what it comes down to is producers who say, well, the cover crop's using a lot of water. They've never looked at how much water they actually lost to evaporation from bare soils or unprotected soils. And so that's what I do is manage my cover crop to protect the soil. Now, I'm not growing huge biomass to feed livestock, for instance, uh, the four-legged livestock for steaks. I'm feeding my soil livestock. I just need a living root there. I need some cover there, some habitat. Well, that's really interesting. That segues us nicely as well to another question I had for you. So talk a little bit about livestock and grazing and um, some of the no-tillers I've talked to swear by, you know, having grazing be part of their uh, system. Others, I mean, obviously not everyone has access to it, but I guess from your experience, do you think that grazing is sort of an integral part of this soil management system with no-till and cover crops, or is it not as important as the other two, would you say? I've got actually two different hats I wear on that. One for me, cover crop is to feed the soil, protect the soil. If I'm grazing it, I'm going to switch my hat to, that's a short season forage. That is not a cover crop, in my opinion. We get a lot of producers who are considering putting in a cover crop, and I ask them, are you going to graze it or not? And they say, well, well, I'll decide that later. I go, no, you have to decide that right up front. Uh, I might select something that grows a lot more biomass. Uh, so I have grazing. I might select a different variety or species such that it has a better feed value. I might uh, seed more seeds per acre because I want to make sure there's enough plants there. I might put some fertilizer on there to raise some high-quality feed. All four of those things I just mentioned now just made my cover crop far more expensive. But that's okay. I'm going to recover it in meat. And so, again, to me, that's a, you're treating it as a forage, an actual crop. The cash crop itself is the meat coming off of there. Now, when it comes to the grazing itself, there's some other benefits. Uh, your ruminants, the uh, sheep, goats, uh, the cattle, uh, they learned a long time ago with their stomach system to break down cellulose. Uh, when the cattle are out there slobbering, uh, they are actually giving us some helpful bacteria to help cycle residue, help uh, break down and uh, make the system work better, breaking down that residue. And so there's a lot of pr producers say that livestock is an integral part that should be in everybody's system. Uh, another thing that livestock does is it tramples some, uh, so it's in contact with the soil microbes and contact with the soil. The others say, well, it's going to be giving you uh, feces and urine to be fertilizer. No, that's not actually fertilizer. It's processing the crop growth that was there in the cover, and it comes back out of the other end of the animal and depends upon the animal. You've got maybe uh, 80, 90% of the value still there, but it, you lost 10% into that animal. So you're not getting free fertilizer by grazing. Now, that first day when they're manure and Urine is from a different feed source somewhere else. That first day does count, but after that, no. So again, the grazing side of things, I'd love to have it. Our research farm, the setup is such that it's, with all the plots and different fields, it's not practical. So I will admit that, no, my long-term no-till farm is does not have animals on it. Now, when it comes to the animals themselves, a lot of people say, well, it's going to compact the ground. Uh, compaction usually indicates a lack of soil structure to support the weight. When you've got a growing cover crop there, uh, you've got roots there uh, giving you soil structure. You've got uh, roots there dewatering uh, the excess uh, soil moisture because uh, dry soils 
are not easily compacted. Wet soils are lubricated and slide, and so they're easily compacted. And a lot of farmers remember back when they did tillage and they grazed their corn stalks after harvest. Cattle footprints are probably as deep as the disc pan was, as deep as they tilled because there's no soil structure. But they end that same man or livestock operator might have cattle out on a pasture and they don't have those footprints down deep. Because again, a pasture has soil structure and has a living root, has something growing there to support the cattle. That's where I like cover crops for grazing rather than just residues. Uh, gets more feed value out there. Now, a warning that I always give to all producers is you have to watch your herbicide labels. And a lot of people say, well, if that cover crop grows, I'm okay. No, it's the herbicide you used on the previous crop will allow you to graze the next crop. And, uh, for instance, a commonly used herbicide, atrazine. Uh, atrazine has a plant back restriction of 12 months. So after corn harvest, I can plant cereal rye. And as far as uh, most regulators are concerned, if it comes up, fine. If it doesn't, that's my problem. But if I graze that cereal rye, I just violated the EPA label. Atrazine has a 12-month plant back restriction. And so you have to be real careful on what our herbicide programs are. Now, again, when people take the easy button and using a uh, Roundup Ready crop and using only glyphosate, then they don't have to worry about that. And so, again, you've got to factor in that system's approach. How does each of these things fit together? We'll come back to the episode in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for supporting today's podcast. If you want to make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Source from Sound Agriculture optimizes the amount of crop nutrition supplied by the microbes in your soil, providing 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre. It's cost-effective and easy to use. Just throw it in the tank and spray in season. If you want to unlock your crop's potential and increase ROI, there's only one answer. Source it. Learn more at sound.ag. And now, let's get back to the episode. So let's go back to something you said at the beginning there about how if you are grazing, these animals provide valuable things to the soil, such as the saliva. If you don't have access to grazing, you don't have the ability to do it, what are some other ways that you can still get those valuable things to your soil structure without the animals? Well, uh, one of the best things we can do, uh, organic producers learned it a long time ago, was haul out any manure that you can find, put it out there. Uh, a lot of your listeners there uh, use uh, poultry manure or uh, beef feedlot manure, or swine manure. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you got to incorporate that into the soil to get the full benefits. No, the tillage to incorporate it is going to erase some of the benefits. And for instance, beef feedlot manure has already blown off a lot of the ammonia nitrogen. The organic nitrogen is still there. Uh, the tillage trip I do uh, might save me five pounds of nitrogen. But uh, a tillage trip is going to cost me equivalent to, I could probably buy 50 pounds of fertilizer for what the tillage cost me. So I don't need to till in that manure. Uh, so like I say, manure is one way. Um, another way is uh, to start looking at uh, what, what I call uh, helping someone else out. That someone else might be that livestock producer who doesn't have his pasture or rangeland because of drought. And you've got something growing that he can graze. Rent it to him. Uh, one that we see quite a bit of is uh, it's pretty expensive to get into farming now, and a uh, young person trying to get into farming doesn't have the land, doesn't have the capital to buy equipment, but they could buy some livestock and pair up with someone 
let that someone be the farmer and they could be the rancher or cowboy or whatever you want to call it. And I know a lot of uh, people about my age said, I'm too old to become a cowboy. My son can do it. And again, it gets the young people into the farming system, diversifying their income stream, diversifying uh, their cropping systems. And so again, there's other, other ways to get livestock into the system if you don't have it themselves. But one of the keys is you got to manage that livestock. I cannot overgraze an area. I can't overtrample it. It's a uh, heavy grains. Uh, you might have to have what I, we call a sacrifice area. You leave the cattle in that area. You know you're going to have some problems, but you're going to protect the rest of the fields. And so again, uh, the grazing is not just turn the cattle out and then come back several months later and bring them home. And unfortunately, we've had a lot of people even manage their pasture and rangeland that way. The first green grass they see in the spring, they turn the cattle out, and when winter comes, they bring them home. Well, that pasture and rangeland never has recovery time, never has chance to really grow good roots, because if you don't have something on top doing photosynthesis, you can't have roots in the bottom. And again, that's a lot of people are looking at putting up temporary fencing and doing mob grazing or swath grazing or moving the cattle across the fields. And again, there's some farmers say, I can't hassle with all that. I don't have time to move the cattle daily or every three days or whatever it is. I don't have time to put up all that fence. And again, it's got to be part of a system to make it all work. Well, you're doing a great job continuing to segue into my next question. <laughs> this is flowing real nicely. You mentioned a little bit about um, economics and cost efficiency. And so obviously that's something all farmers have to be um, cognizant of, but let's talk about soil health from an economic standpoint here. So I guess, what would you say to someone or how would you counter some of these folks who would argue that no-till, you know, doesn't get high enough yields and ultimately isn't as profitable? Well, again, it depends on where you're at when it comes to potential profit or potential loss as you're adopting these new systems. And uh, to me, uh, one of the main problems we've had are too many of our bankers, our landlords, our dads, or whoever, think short-term. What happens this year? And uh, they don't think the long-term. And uh, we got a lot of no-till farmers that say, well, that first or second year is pretty tough. But boy, by the time I got to year 10, I'm wondering why I didn't do it sooner. We got to think long-term. And again, the banker or the landlord may not think that way uh, if you're on rented ground. Now, if I own the ground, I want to pass it on to my children, my grandchildren, then I can invest a lot more in uh, building that soil health because it's going to pay off in the future. And like the example I used earlier, the corn bean rotation in a dry year, 120, corn bean wheat with cover crop, 180. You know, that's a huge payoff. Uh, so what if I didn't make as many dollars on that wheat crop that year? But boy, a uh, 60 bushel of corn can make up for a lot in a hurry. And so, again, you got to start thinking long-term to build that soil health. And, again, I tell farmers that uh, uh, here, oh, I tried cover crops. It didn't work. Well, you don't build soil health overnight. Uh, it's going to build soil health by feeding the soil system. If I've got a, an empty feed yard out there with no cattle and I throw a bunch of hay bales out there, no, nothing's going to happen because there's no cattle to eat the hay. Well, the same thing with uh, a cover crop or a soil amendment or uh, some biological product. If we have no nothing there to feed, we're not going to get a return on your investment that year. But what might happen is you're going to build a little bit this year, a little bit more next year, a little bit more the year after. And we've got a lot of farmers saying, you know, those first couple of years, just manage, 
the mistakes. Don't make big mistakes that cost you huge dollars. Uh, you know, a few bushels lost here, perhaps, or a few extra dollars on seed, it's going to pay off in the future. And so that's what we got to do is think long term. Um, again, your banker, your landlord may not be thinking that way. But we have others, uh, landlords in particular, who say, well, I want to protect that land. You know, grandpa had it, dad had it, I'm renting it out now. Um, I want that to be protected for future generations. Those are the kinds of landlord to find. Let's talk a little bit about um, soil testing and, and kind of these the ways that there are to, to really see some of the differences that are being made in the soil. I think a lot of farmers kind of swear by these tests and, and some others are, are content to just kind of keep going with their practices and, and they just kind of assume that their soil is getting better. Where do you stand? What's the importance, would you say, of, of actually testing your soil and seeing, you know, if you're adding more soil microbial back, uh, activity and, and things of that nature? Well, when it comes to soil testing or uh, anything like that, uh, there's a saying, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. Well, that's very true with the soil. If you don't know what's going on there, you don't know how to take care of it to may improve it and things like this. The unfortunate thing is that a lot of these new tests that are out there, yes, it gives me a great number on uh, mycorrhiza fungi, for instance. AMF, I've got a lot more. Well, the farmer will ask you, well, how much does that go for at the elevator right now? Is that truly a return on your investment to build that? Well, in the short term, maybe not. In the long term, I definitely think it is. But again, uh, the trouble is, is a lot of these tests are not calibrated to what you should do for management. And I say that because the basic nutrient test for NPK, sulfur, so on like that, the uh, university has been doing research on that for years. And they get a critical level that if you're a, you know, high or very high versus a medium low or whatever, how much do you need to apply to correct that? Well, if I get a soil health score of 16, what does that mean? And does a 16 in Nebraska and a 16 in New Mexico mean the same thing? Uh, until the universities start testing all of these new soil health tests and calibrate them into management, we don't know what it's worth. And the worst thing is, is we're not sure what to test. AMF, for instance, the mycorrhiza helps us bring in phosphorus. Well, we had one researcher in our own university system who did a one-time tillage of long-term no-till and said that uh, it didn't hurt. Well, he failed to say it didn't help, but he did say five years later the uh, mycorrhiza had not recovered yet, but it didn't hurt because the yields didn't get hurt. Well, again, uh, what are you researching? What are you measuring? Does it actually make agronomic sense? Now, with that in mind, I don't spend a lot of time doing a lot of these new creative tests because what do you do with the data? And, uh, you know, we hit the same thing on yield monitors. Uh, people gathered data for years and didn't know how to make a management decision. And so, again, until you get some calibration of what does that soil test mean or what does that yield monitor data mean, then you can start making those decisions. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your, uh, your role. Obviously, you've been with um, Nebraska Extension for a very long time. And I just, I'm curious what you feel is the role or the most important um, duty, I guess, of these uh, university extensions in terms of kind of educating younger folks and getting them involved in agriculture. 
Well, when it comes to uh, university extension, uh, we just simply like to think that we are the same as the instructors on campus. It's just our classroom is for uh, me, the entire state. And it's uh, the students aren't just these uh, four-year students living on campus. It's everybody living out there. And so in a way, it's uh, teaching, bringing them new knowledge. And so a lot of the principles we teach are, uh, we've used various terms across the years, depends on who the extension dean is. They change it to match the <laughs> their management style, but one that I liked in uh, Nebraska that we used was putting knowledge to work. And for extension, then going out to the farmers, uh, the producers, the livestock men, whatever, uh, we can put some knowledge to work based upon the research that was done. And that's the knowledge that we've gained. Uh, now, another catchphrase, another one of our deans had years ago was uh, helping producers make informed management decisions. And again, uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do on your land, but I'm going to tell you how to decide better for what you need to do by giving you some uh, background and information from my years of experiences, uh, for instance, working with those farmers, or from uh, years of my plot work on the university farm. If you do X, Y will appear or something like this. And so again, I like to think that most of us in extension are not telling you exactly what to do, but exactly uh, think about what you're doing and why are you doing it. And then we can give you some information why you should be changing that. Now, when it comes to ages, uh, our extension system across the United States, we got an excellent youth program in 4-H. And 4-H is uh, definitely geared to, to inform the youth uh, about anything and everything. Now, to be truthful, some of the extension 4-H activities when it comes to crop production, soil health, things like that, aren't as strong as they could be or should be. And that's primarily because uh, that 12-year-old, he doesn't have soil to worry about soil health. He might have that calf he's going to show at the fair. So again, we got to match our expertise to the people's needs. Uh, So where are we doing our programming? Uh, Who needs the most help? That kind of thing. And also, who's most receptive to help? Uh, One of the worst things you can do is put together an excellent meeting and promote it in an area that they don't even do that. And uh, we've seen that on some uh, alternative crops, for instance. Uh, Everyone always picks on Jerusalem artichokes or uh, ostriches, uh, the potbelly pigs, things like that. You can have an excellent program on how to do it, but if the audience isn't interested, it's not going to work. So, again, that's one of the challenges of extension. Uh, What knowledge do you have that you can impart on them so they can make informed management decisions? And do they need that information? All right. Well said. Well, I think this will be a good question to to end on here. You joked at the beginning that, you know, you've only been there so long because you're too lazy to look for a new role. But obviously, if you've been there that long, you must enjoy it. So I'm curious, what is the most enjoyable or the most rewarding part about, about your role for you? For me, uh, yes, I've been in the same position, like I say, since 1978, my undergrad degree and 80, my master's degree and still here. Uh, My most enjoyable thing is learning. I'm still learning. Uh, Some people say, well, you should have everybody converted by now. And I go, no, job security, people don't convert overnight. Uh, I've still been working on the same uh, research farm the entire time and seeing the same faces in some of the tours and meetings ever since as well, but it's that learning and whether it be uh, from something I'm doing in the field myself, or it's that uh, producer I'm visiting with in uh, Montana because his conditions are totally different. 
and how did he address the problem? Because a lot of these things that we talk about in agriculture, they're the same no matter where you're at. I've done meetings in uh, about 10 different foreign countries as well. And again, when it comes to agriculture, it's basically the same. We're using the soil to grow a plant, and we want to harvest sunlight and carbon dioxide and use some water and some other things to grow that plant. And I'm going to learn about how to do that better while protecting the environment, reducing risk to the environment, improving soil health so my plants do better. Uh, I like a it's a long phrase that some people cringe, but uh, healthy soils for healthy crops for healthy food, for healthy people, for healthy communities. And uh, people that cringe is those who are the diehard university people say, well, you have no proof on the soil health affecting, for instance, the food, quality of the food, the health of the food. Well, it's because people haven't researched that yet. But we have farmers who are thinking along the same way, that if we build it, it'll all appear. And so we got to work across that system. And again, that's one of the things that keeps me going, that learning. How do I take that next step to learn the next thing? Uh, my dad had his saying uh, one time, he used to come to a lot of my meetings. He passed away a few years ago. But uh, people say, well, you're already retired. Why are you still going to meetings? Uh, are you still learning? When are you going to quit learning? My dad says, when I die. And again, that's sort of what I do too is, we going to keep learning, keep trying to put it to work. That's what Extension does for me. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to Paul Yasa for that great conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Source from Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this podcast possible. A transcript of this episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.